Good morning. My name is Emily. I'll be reading our scripture for today. It is Exodus chapters 1 and 2. It is on page 42 of the Pew Bibles in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Again, we're reading Exodus chapters 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? 
He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. As we teach through the book of Exodus, there will be times we don't read every word of every passage. But today wasn't one of those. Thank you, Emily. There's that famous line in the movie The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy realizes she's not in Kansas anymore, right? When we pick up the book of Exodus, God's people are not in the promised land anymore. And they haven't been there for a long time. And life is not getting harder. It's been hard. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're asking what the Israelites were asking. Does God hear? Does he see? Does he know? Does he care? Well, let's pray. And we'll see this passage's encouraging answer to those sorts of questions. Heavenly Father, I thank you as has been said earlier at least twice in the worship service that you delight to draw near to the weak, the wounded, and the wayward, those who are afraid. Lord, I pray that you would cause as we see your promise keeping in this passage that you would cause our belief and trust and um, allegiance to you and your promises to, to, to rise up so we get a glimpse more of who you are, the God who is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I could give you a list of silly things that make me afraid. At least they're silly in the light of the more serious things that a person could be afraid of. I'm afraid I'll accidentally eat a bunch of dairy. Uh, That's probably not a fearful thing you live with day in, day out. That's something I actually am afraid of. (laughs) Um, Reasons why it wasn't always that way, and it is that way now, and I won't go into why. But that's a, a sort of real but sort of silly fear I have. Um, I'm afraid of heights. I'm okay here on the stage, don't worry. Uh, But to stand close to an edge 
I mean, even if I know I'm perfectly safe, I could just feel like this is not okay. Um, I have an irrational fear of flying insects. Um, <laughs> you, would, you would think uh, that as a child, I'll say, to my knowledge, as a child, I was never engulfed in a swarm of bees, but you would think by the way I respond when a bee flies around me, that I might have been. There are other fears, though, more serious ones. I won't share with you. Probably they're not too fantastical, because I suspect they're the sorts of fears we all have. There's a line in one of Paul's letters where he says, No temptation has seized you except which is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I suspect the same is true of fear. No fear, no deep fear anyway, is so bizarre, so unique that that no one else shares it or that we all don't in some way, shape, or form share it. The fear of being destitute, the fear of losing a spouse, the fear of never finding a spouse, Fear of not being known for who you truly are or the fear of being known for who you truly are. Fear of physical danger, of disease and death. No fear overtakes us that is not common to man. And, and this passage in, this before us this morning in Exodus, it, it is like so many that we're going to encounter throughout this study is, I would use the word, Epic. A passage full of fear. None of them silly. All of them real. Now I want to put our passage in in what I'll call two halves. Now, they're not the halves you probably suspect of chapter 1 and chapter 2. That would be easy. The the first half, as I want to envision it for us here this morning, uh, is almost the entire passage. But in most of the passage, we see what I'm going to call the hidden, hidden hand of God's promise keeping. We don't see God moving, but he's moving. In the second half, which is only a few verses, we're going to read of the explicit statement of God's promise keeping. But that doesn't come till the very end of chapter two. So let's talk about the hidden hand of God's promise keeping first. Probably we can relate well to this because the hidden hand of God's promise keeping is how we most often experience God. We long for more, something more overt, more dramatic, something with kapow, right? But it's not always what happens. It's not often what happens. That's, that's what the Israelites were longing for. And yet the opening lines of the book, they, they seem to only speak of names and death and life and travel. The lines go like this. Verses 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Echoing, as the book will often do, creation language. 
A modern novelist might say that a good writer should start a story with more flair than a list of names. Book of Exodus, First Chronicles, perhaps the book of Matthew. But this list of names is a way to tell us that the book of Exodus is not so much a new story, but a new chapter in a continuing story. The same story, the one story. In the Hebrew Bible, the first word in the book is the word and. In other words, this stuff happened, and then this stuff happened. The Exodus happened. And speaking of what became before, I didn't do a whole lot of this last week as I kind of gave a prologue for the book and our, our, our sermon series through it, but I, but I should talk more about the context. The name Israel is used in the first part of the passage in the phrase, the sons of Israel. Now, later in the passage, he's called Jacob. He's a man as so often is the case in the Bible with two names, but we often know Israel as the nation of Israel, hence Israelites, but the first Israel was a person, was a man. And God had promised Israel, as he had first promised his grandfather Abraham, that God would bless Israel and he would make him the father of many, many people, that his nation would be exceedingly huge. Genesis 35, Genesis 12. And you see that happening in verse 7. The fact that the people of God are multiplying is, to the biblically informed reader, supposed to be evidence, supposed to have kapow, that God is keeping his promises. The author is saying here to us, subtly I agree, but he's saying to us, you know that thing that God promised back in Genesis? Yeah, he's still doing it. He hasn't forgot. He remembers. But God's promise keeping and the size of Israel becomes a problem because I said before, they're not in the promised land anymore. Back in Genesis, and this is part of the story that's just alluded to here at the beginning of Exodus, but one of Israel's sons, Joseph, he gets sent to Egypt, which is a polite way to refer to that. He's sent to Egypt ahead of time, ahead of his brothers, and through the extraordinary province of God, he's there, rises to power. There's a famine. People come to him, including his own family, and he's able to feed them and that's how the, all the brothers get to Egypt. That's what's mentioned. That's what is alluded to in the book of Egypt. That's the story that continues in the book of Egypt. And all is well and good until verse 8. Look with me as I read verse 8. It's an iconic line here in the book. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Nearly 400 years have passed, so... Probably so. And this king, this pharaoh, experiences the promise of God to bless his people and make them great, not as a blessing, but as a threat. Look how Pharaoh phrases it, verses 9 and 10. Behold, this is Pharaoh speaking to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal, what's the word? shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land shrewdly that's an interesting word isn't it shrewdly is a euphemism it's a nice word for something more harsh that's often how propaganda goes you appeal to the fears of people 
in this case, that Israel is a threat to the national security of Egypt, and then you provide the people a solution to the problem you just told them about, all the while you conveniently benefit from that same solution. Propaganda requires inflaming fear before you calm fear. Maybe Israel will join our enemies in a war. Do you want that? Maybe. But maybe Pharaoh just needs a cheap labor force. Let's see what shrewdly really meant. Verses 11 to 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitman and Ramses, but... The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. There's that word again. God's working. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's, that's what shrewdly meant. The new king who arose over Egypt, he didn't know Joseph, but he knows how to deal shrewdly with Joseph's people. Or he thinks he does. I mean, we have to remember Genesis 12. Uh, You, as a church, preached through a number of passages this summer in a series about world missions. And Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is a key passage in all of the Bible where God promises that whoever blessed Abraham and his family, they would be blessed. But whoever dishonors Abraham's family, they're going to be cursed. And Pharaoh, although he doesn't know it, he's about to reap the whirlwind. When slavery isn't enough to suppress God's people, the people of Israel and their growth, Pharaoh tries to kill their babies, at least the male babies. Pharaoh thinks that men will be stronger and more able to rebel and the women can be kept around because they're not able to rebel, at least in the same way, and they're likely good for abuse. Women, so they thought, were of less value, and little does Pharaoh know. Little does Pharaoh know that it will be the courage and faith of women that bring him down, or at least what God uses to start the process to bring him down. Speaking of women full of faith, these two Hebrew midwives are named in particular. Pharaoh's not important enough to get a name. (laughs) Pharaoh. These two women, Shifra and Pua, perhaps superintendents of sorts, perhaps over this industry of midwifery. I don't know how to say that. But in verse 17, they're said, we're told they fear God. It's a big deal. Pharaoh doesn't fear God. He doesn't know this God. And we talked about that last week. To fear God means that their reverence and their awe and their allegiance to God is stronger than their fear of Pharaoh. Even the fear of losing their own lives. Where does this kind of courage come from? Where does your courage come from? When you have to do something hard for God as a Christian, where's your courage come from? Just some scenarios. Maybe you've committed a sin. And as a guest, someone in particular, you need to confess that sin. You're worried like, okay, if I tell them I did this, how's that going to go? There's a fear. 
Maybe someone sinned against you, and you've you got to tell someone, but to tell someone that someone sinned against you, maybe even the person or maybe just other people, you don't know how that's going to be received, and you're afraid. Where do you get courage? Are some people just more courageous than others? I doubt anyone in this passage wanted these things to happen in their time. Everyone in this passage is like us in that they want to choose courage on our own terms. We want to be brave when we want to, when the odds are in our favor, when we can play to our strengths, when the risk is low. In other words, we want to be courageous when no courage is really required. As teaching pastors at our church, we have to ration the number of times we quote from Lord of the Rings lest we fall into a great stereotype um, that may be more than a stereotype. But there's this line in Lord of the Rings where, where, where Fro- it comes to mind, all right, where, where Frodo's lamenting the fact he's got to take the ring to Mordor. Right? That's the quest. He's got to destroy the ring and the fires of Mordor. And the passage in the Fellowship of the Ring reads, I wish it need not have happened in my time, Frodo says. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times, but it is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. I confess that I want to be a courageous pastor at this church, but I want to do it when I get to pick the battles. You know, the ones I'm good at, the ones that don't involve a pandemic. (laughs) But that's not really courage, is it? Where did their courage to conquer fear and save these babies come from? They believed the promises of God. That's the source of their courage. Verse 17, we read, But the midwives fear God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. Then we read in verse 20, So God dealt well with the midwives. Verse 22, And God blessed them and gave them families. In other words, God is blessing them. Where their courage from? They believed in the hidden hand of God to keep his promises. The promises to bless those who bless his people. They feared the Lord. They took his promises seriously. And then they acted in courage. That's, that's the only way this works. In verse 22, Pharaoh must tweak his plan. Now he commands all the people to do his dirty work. All his people, excuse me. State-sponsored genocide. Now, you just have to imagine that just because Pharaoh made this rule to throw the baby boys in the Nile, it's not like the mothers and fathers like, well, there's a rule. We have to do it. No, a common occurrence in the streets of Israelite ghettos would have been soldiers kicking through doors followed by screaming and wailing and mothers with empty arms shaking their fists at heaven and yelling, do you see, do you know, do you hear? Do you even care? This passage shifts abruptly in chapter two to the birth of Moses. I'm not gonna read that part of the passage, but the first 10 verses of chapter two, Moses is born, he's hidden, he's floated on the Nile River and a vessel that's described exactly like the ark back in Genesis, not as big. 
So not exactly. And then he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and Moses' brother and becomes, Moses, excuse me, Moses' mother becomes a nurse of Moses. More courage by more women. And we should feel the irony of this. Right under Pharaoh's nose, though he kept women alive, what happens? A Hebrew sister and a Hebrew mother and an Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh undermine the whole state-sponsored genocide. Even when God doesn't seem like he's working, he's working. Keeping his promises. Now in the next section, some minutia here, and I don't want it to distract us, I just want to make mention of it. Moses, I would say he's often referred to as a murderer. He grows up and he kills this Egyptian. So, not sure that's how we should look at it, but, but look with me at verses 11 and 12. Moving towards, towards the end here. One day when Moses had grown up, so time's gone by, we know from other passages, roughly 40 years, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Interesting, his people. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, literally his brother. I'm not ashamed to identify with these people as brothers. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I tend to think Moses' intervention was for the cause of justice. Maybe. Maybe he looked left and right because he hopes no one else is there. Maybe. I think he looked left and right because he knows somebody's got to do something. Where are you at? That's my opinion. And he does something. Hiding the body in the sand, maybe not the best place to hide a body. And clearly other people were watching. Because the word travels fast. The Hebrews, his people, they mock him. He's trying to intervene in another situation. Like, I just want to help you guys. Now my own people are fighting. They mock him. Moses knows that Pharaoh knows, and so he runs away. I'm not going to read the next part either. Just summarize again briefly. Moses, again, defends people being mistreated. This time, several women. The father of the women wants to meet him. He's like, wait, 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 wait. So, so you're at the watering hole and like these shepherds are just mistreating you and some guy runs off all these rough shepherds and you don't invite him for dinner? <laughs> Who is this guy? We're out here in the woods. Like, we need to meet this guy. I've got seven daughters, I think, is what he's thinking. So they invite him for dinner and lo and behold, father gives away one of his daughters in marriage to Moses, presumably a little slower than it reads in the passage. And Moses has a son whose name is Gershom, which, full footnote down there, says, means sojourner. Moses feels like he belongs nowhere. He thought the Hebrews were his people, and they are. They mock him. Then in verse 19, the women, chapter 2, the women who he rescues call him an Egyptian. It's like, to us, you're just, you're, you're an Egyptian. And then he marries a Midianite. So what is he? And who is he? Who's his son? They're sojourners, men without homes for at least the next 40 years. So that's the first thematic half of the passage. Few rays of hope here and there, but on the whole, God's people continue to be mistreated and their leader Their guy inside the palace of the king, if that's what he was, 
He's disappeared. He's in the wilderness. We don't know what's become of him. And the people groan in their fear. Look at verse 23. During those days, many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. I, I, I don't know all that they're groaning, man. I don't even want to pretend to know. But in a small way, I can sympathize. Last week was this high watermark for our church. Of several. We had three baptisms and took the Lord's Supper with 300 people and then had a picnic under the sun. That was Sunday. On Monday, I held the hand of a man who loves the Lord and soon will be in the presence of the Lord. On another day, I got a series of emergency phone calls I won't go into. On several days, I talked to different people who were weary. I spoke with others wrestling with outcomes to certain issues that, that feel out of their hand and yet greatly affect their futures. And I suspect several of the people I have in mind were asking if God sees or hears or knows or cares. Have you asked those questions before? Look how the passage ends. 23, 24, excuse me, 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant, his promise, his covenant, think, think, promise with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, Jacob, another name for Israel. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Does God hear? Does he see? Does he know? Exodus 20, or 2, 24 and 25 says he does. But, but you might say, yeah, maybe he does, but he can't do anything about it. It's not the thought that counts God. Do something, someone might say. Can, can God do something about your groaning? Well, in the book of Exodus, God's just about to roll up his sleeves. Stay tuned. In the New Testament, we know God to keep his promises because he sent his son to be our savior. He sent Jesus to be our savior. The, the women in this passage, they don't seem like much, but God uses them to undermine Pharaoh and break the chains of slavery. Jesus, in a sense, doesn't look like much. A lowly Jewish carpenter turned rabbi from a backwater town. Can anything good come of Nazareth? But his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection over sin and death and evil guarantee, become the guarantee of his promise keeping that he will one day come again and make every wrong right and wipe every tear from our eyes. No fear has overcome us except which is common to man. And no fear has overcome us that the promises of Christ cannot comfort. Paul writes in Romans 8, and I close with this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Pharaoh? 
Jesus Christ is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that through the preaching of your word, your word would, would, would come like a hammer and a chisel that would pound through the ice that tends to form over our hearts. We become cold, indifferent to your promises, indifferent to your power, indifferent to your majesty. Lord, I pray that through the gathering with your people, through the singing of hymns and songs, through the preaching of your word, through the prayers that are prayed, that you would break in and remind us that when you see and hear and know and remember, it is not in vain. We pray this all in Christ's name.